We're in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence excuse me, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. Anoint our souls and our ears to be fed by you. Uh, guard my speech and give me clarity of mind and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've gone through Jonah, he's uh, rebelled, he's gone into a fish, and he's sang some psalms and made his way to Nineveh. <clears throat> and what we see here is uh, the second time the word comes, he is obedient, and we see the response of the Ninevites <clears throat> to the word of the Lord. And what we want to keep in mind here is the proverb that uh, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so true, true wisdom comes first from the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so a fool is someone who's hard-hearted. A fool is somebody that is resistant to the word. And Jonah has played the part of the fool up until this point. Now Jonah's, because of the things the Lord has done to Jonah, he's been softened, and now he says in his heart, there is God, and he responds to God with softness. He shows wisdom here with his responsiveness. Fools do not listen to correction, right? Fools don't heed your word. How many times do you see people that you would identify as a fool and they get sound advice over and over again and they just never do it, right? Hey, you really shouldn't, you know, you really shouldn't date that guy. I think he's bad for you. Seriously, he's not good news. I can't believe you broke my heart, right? The fool says in their heart, there is no God. The fool doesn't heed, right? Fools don't listen to sound wisdom. The fool breaks out against all sound reason. Right. So if a, if a river guide tells me there's a waterfall up ahead, I'm actually the fool if I stay in the river, right? So the, the fool has to respond to wisdom, the one who knows, the counsel, right? This is what the prophet does. The prophet brings God's word. The prophet knows something. He knows where waterfalls are that someone who's blind doesn't know how to identify. They don't know that their ways are folly. They don't know that following their own desires is actually death. They think, this is going well for me. I, I don't think there are any waterfalls here. I'm having a really good time, actually. But because they're a fool, they're not listening to the prophet say, no, 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 that river actually is going to kill you. 
I know you're enjoying it, and it's real a nice, easy current, but it gets faster and harder, and you'll drown. And so this is what Jonah brings to the people of Nineveh, right? And he doesn't bring much. Again, just like the boat, it's one sentence. Who are you? I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God of the land who made the land and the sea. And they are absolutely dumbfounded, and they fall on their faces and worship the true God. And again, he comes to Nineveh, and he says one thing. In 40 days, God's going to destroy everything, right? You can assume maybe more was said, but all we're told, all we're revealed is that one thing goes out, God's word, the proclamation of justice coming, of destruction coming, there's a waterfall up ahead, and everybody jumps out of the river. These are not fools. These are people that are ready to receive wisdom. They've gotten correction, and they respond to it accordingly. The fear of the Lord brings nations to repentance. Not just people, but entire nations, cities, Whole societies repent when the fear of the Lord is upon them. Verses 1 through 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The old flesh is cut off from Jonah. You can see the fish as a kind of baptism, right? What are, what are the baptisms? What has water done in the Old Testament up to this point? It's taken Israel out of Egypt. It's killed the, the Pharaoh, the Egyptians. It's drowned the death behind them. Right? It's been used to feed them from a rock. Their blessings come from heaven. We talked about this, the different agricultural systems. Right? And so Jonah is put into the fish the old flesh is cut off. The death, the old thing is left behind in the watery tomb. And he comes out and now he can hear, right? When does God give Israel the law? Before or after the Red Sea? After the Red Sea. So he cuts off their slavery. He cuts off their old flesh. And then he gives them the law. Right? So Jonah is cut off from his old flesh. He's cut off from his hardness. And he's again now given the word. And this time, because the old thing's cut off, because something happened to him, because he went into the fish, because he was changed, because he died and was resurrected, now he hears and obeys. It's different now. And to this faith, the faith of Jonah to respond to God, right? So a thing we want to recognize is how the Bible's using faith. The operating principle for faith is hearing, right? Romans' faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And who is the, who is the perfect archetype of faith prior to Christ? Is Abraham. Okay, so what does Abraham's faith and his vindication look like? It looks like him doing the stuff God says to do. And so the, the bifurcation of faith and works is unhelpful in many ways. It's like, are you saved by faith or works? It's like, you're saved by hearing God's word and obeying it. That's the, that's the only category, right? Do you heed the word of God? Right? Have you heard God's word? The, he, the Hebrew word, Shema, hear means hear and obey. There isn't any, there's not an alternative where you can be like, yeah, I trust Jesus, but I don't do anything that he tells me to do. Well, you don't trust him then, right? If you trusted him, you'd do what he said. If you're my friend, you'll obey my voice. That's what he tells his disciples. And so Jonah here is truly hearing. To truly hear, to hear God, is to obey his word, to do what he says. Now that doesn't mean, again, as soon as I say something like this, the red flag that ought to go off is, oh, you're saying we're saved by works, right? If we, we have to obey perfectly to be saved. No, that's what confession, repentance, all that stuff does. 
Your repentance is you trusting and obeying and hearing God's word. Come to me, repent, all you are heavy laden. Give me your burdens. Oh, you did that. You heard his voice. You heard the call to worship, and you confessed your sins. You're doing a good job, right? That's good stuff. But what we want to keep in mind here is that faith is a bigger thing than just what you intellectually assent to, right? Jonah's faithfulness reemerges from the fish, right? He, he knew God was real. He knew who Yahweh was, and he knew what God had asked of him. And he was faithless in his disobedience. So God pushes him into a fish. He comes out reborn, and now he is faithful. Now he goes, the second time the word comes around, he goes, okay? So we just want to keep that in mind, that the faith that God is pleased with, the faith that God provokes in his saints is a faith that actually hears the word of God and does it, uh, to hear and to obey. And so this is what Jonah's bringing to Nineveh, okay? And you'll see this pattern with the Ninevites. They hear and immediately respond to the word of God. And so the word from, from God, the word Jonah, we want to see this in, in the prophets especially, is that the word is all stuff, all structure, it's all furniture that's being built for Jesus to then come fill out, right? Jesus is the word incarnate. And the word proceeds from the Father according to his will. So any faithful prophet, any faithful Christian, any faithful person made in the image of Jesus, anyone who's like Christ, will proceed from the Father according to his will. Right? This is creation. The Father wills to make, and he speaks, and the word goes out, and it makes stuff. Right? The incarnation, the word is made flesh in the womb of Mary, the word goes from the Father, becomes Israel, becomes man, becomes a new Adam, according to the will of the Father. Right? Redemption. The word goes into the tomb, and the word resurrects from the tomb, bringing new life, vindicating humanity from birth to death now. Right? The word goes out according to the Father's will and accomplishes, is efficacious. It does stuff. It actually will manifest new realities. This is what Augustine says of Jonah, Jonah verse 3. As Jonah was first commanded to preach to the Ninevites, but his prophecy did not come to them until after the whale had vomited him out, so the prophecy made to the Gentiles did not come out until after the resurrection of Christ. That there is glorification that actually happens, right? We talked about this a little bit last week, that Jonah's not the same Jonah after he comes out of the fish. He can't be. It's impossible. You can never go back home. So anytime death and resurrection occurs in any microcosmic way or any grand way, what happens on the other side is glorification. The thing that comes after resurrection is always better than the thing before. Adam, before there's even sin, Adam is basically killed. He's put into a death-like sleep, sleep deep enough that a rib can be ripped out of him and he doesn't wake up, right? He's put down into sleep and he comes up with a woman with glorified humanity. Before, it's not good, man should be alone. I'm going to put him to death, and then I'm going to resurrect him, and it'll be better this time. It'll be man and woman. And now, for the first time ever, somebody sings in the Bible. Adam sings a poem to Eve. Glorified speech. Okay? And so Jonah, before he dies, right? A bunch of sailors convert from one sentence. He gets buried, comes out. Now when he goes out and speaks, an entire city will convert. It's better. It's more glorious because of death and resurrection. Because the word, he's patterning, he's setting up patterns and rhythms that Jesus will make explicit and clear. 
verses 3 through 5. So Jonah arose and went to, the, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. The term great city, it's emphasized here. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, that great city. An exceedingly great city. In Jeremiah 22 and then Revelation 11 and 14, the great city, this should give you some undertones or overtones, depending on how you want to use it, of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the great city, right? The new Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride of Christ, his people, right? That's the ultimate great city. But up until this point, Jerusalem is the only great city. But now what's Nineveh being identified as? The great city. Nineveh, that great city. That exceedingly great city. There's multiple ways to think about it, right? It is a great city just politically. It's got great power, force, wealth. It's a dominant empire in the Middle East at this time. But remember, the Bible has different kinds of categories that you want to be mindful of. This is a great city in the eyes of the Lord. Because he has a design for Nineveh, for the Assyrian Empire. It's going to be the, it's going to be the, the whale in which the people of God are hid inside of during the exile. This is going to be the new Jerusalem for a time. Nineveh, the great city. This is, what makes a city great, right? What makes somebody wise? Power, strength, money, hearing the word of God, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The great city says, the, the great city receives the word of God, okay? Jerusalem has forsaken God. He's removing his presence from the land, his special presence, his special favor with his people, and he's establishing a place where they'll be hid in Nineveh, the great city now, because this city will actually hear him. This city will stop murdering prophets, And so we're going to see a number of different themes here, right? The three days journey. And Jonah goes in one day and then he begins to preach, right? This midway point through the, the, the size of the city. The city is like the whale, right? He's in the whale for three days. You're in the city for three days before you get back out of it. He's, again, laying track for Israel to walk on behind him. That's what prophets are. Prophets are the land embodied and they go about, and they're supposed to do the stuff Israel does. Right? And so he's paving the way. This is what's going to happen. The people of God are going to enter into this city. They're going to enter into the land of Assyria in exile, and God will rebirth them through it. But the word of God will actually reside in the city. It'll actually reside in the, in the Assyrian empire. And he gives them 40 days. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all we're told, he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You can imagine him just walking through the streets like a, like a carnival barker, shouting this out to the people. And it's wicked easy to imagine somebody doing this in New York City, Boston, right, Chicago, and nobody cares. He's mocked. He's humiliated. Right? 
I'm not saying we should do this, right? We haven't been given special revelation to go into New York and say, yet 40 days, and New York will be overthrown. Maybe it will be overthrown in 40 days. I don't know. But he does this. You can imagine that anybody else, any other situation, he'd be dismissed. This guy's a fool. This guy's crazy. This guy smells like a fish, right? (laughs) He's clearly not right. But that's actually a foolish thing to say. And so Nineveh shows itself as wise by responding to this, right? Yet 40 days, the city will be overthrown. Again, he's giving Nineveh Israel-like identity. Who is changed over, over patterns of 40 days? God's people, right? The wilderness, Jesus fasts for 40 days. These are, these are periods of transition, of being taken from one state to another, of being changed Testing and deliverance. That's what 40 days is for. It'll be overthrown. It'll actually be flipped upside down. The same terms used for Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how Sodom and Gomorrah is judged. When Sodom and Gomorrah is overthrown, it's literally deleted from the map. It's flipped upside down. Nineveh is already upside down. It's already a city that skins people alive and puts them on stakes. It's already an inverted society bent against the will of God. And so if God's going to overthrow Nineveh, right? Here's the poetic license God's taking. If he overthrows Nineveh, it actually turns right side up again, right? Instead of facing death, it faces the heavens. Instead of facing murder, it faces life, faces the Lord. So he actually does overthrow this city in one day. In one day, the city's overthrown and repents of their sin. The people immediately respond from this impending judgment, right? And people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They take off their own glory and they put on robes of humiliation. We don't really register the significance of clothing uh, in our society. But throughout human history, clothing has communicated social roles. Societal rank. What is your role in society? What do you do? What's your office? Right? And so any kind, any kind of robe or vestment was a sign of glory, a sign of significance, importance, power, authority. So the entire city, from the greatest to the least, they disrobe and they all identify as dust. We're all dirt. We're all dead men walking from the greatest to the least. All of, all of our riches are filthy rags. Their inward repentance, their, I, my, you know, inwardly I'm, I'm humble, inwardly I, I submit to God. Does that ever come out? Does it ever bust out in your real life? Have you ever prayed on your knees? Right? Have you ever gone prostrate before the Lord? Does humility actually manifest in real time? Does repentance actually manifest with a broken and a contrite heart? With sorrow for sin? with actually burning your phone, disconnecting the internet for like a week, right? Does repentance actually do stuff in our lives? As soon as Nineveh, the entire city, everybody, the king is like, we've got to cut it out. We've got to change. And everybody puts dust and ash on them and sackcloth. Repentance actually manifests a new reality for them. They turn from their wicked ways. 
they do a, a quick about face. This fasting is prep- actually preparation for death, right? In a way, and it's an acknowledgement that they're already dead. Let's stop putting food in our mouths. That's what living people do. We've been trying to sustain ourselves this whole time. Get it out. This is why the church has used the 40 days um, before Easter for Lent. It's a way to participate in preparing to die with Christ, to pick up your cross and follow him. I'm not saying everybody has to do that, right? You don't want to impose things on people's consciences. But just recognize there are helpful guides that people have identified as patterns in scriptures as ways for us to every year remember we have to die to ourself. You have to put off the old man and put on the new. This is what Nineveh is doing. As an entire city, the word comes in and they start cutting off the old man so the new could be put on. They, they weren't even told if they repented that there'd be mercy. All they know is in 40 days the city would be overthrown. That's faith. Maybe, maybe if we repent, maybe if we turn from our wicked ways, maybe if we hear this God's word, maybe he'll show us mercy. There was no promise to the people of Nineveh that God would be merciful to them. If they had any recollection of Sodom and Gomorrah, they'd be like, ah, oh, it's all over. Right? It's all over. But maybe, maybe there's hope. Maybe this God of Israel, maybe he'll be merciful to us. A soft heart mourns at the sound of judgment. This is like a funeral, right? They're mourning. Judgment's coming, and their hearts are broken. This is what Jesus teaches his disciples about the Tower of Siloam. Remember the story? A tower falls, people die, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what went wrong? How do we read this? And Jesus says, you be thankful that you weren't in the tower, right? Repent of your sins. When you see people fall, right? Robbie Zacharias, it's like, don't do the, I told you so, or like, he probably wasn't one of us anyways. Mourn. Like, what am I harboring in my life that if I had wealth and power and access, I'd do the exact same thing? Verses 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways, And from the violence that is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There's two different ways people think about change occurring in societies grassroots or top-down, right? Like, which one do we pursue? And like most things, it's rarely just one or the other. 
but the weight actually tends to lean on the direction a head goes is typically where the body follows. Right? I mean, you can see this in most families, right? Just sociological data shows us that if a father, regardless of the mother's church attendance, if a father faithfully attends church, the children have a 70% better chance of retaining the faith. Where the head goes, the body follows, right? And you can see this anecdotally. Most churches, right, if a pastor is there long enough, the people will tend to develop the strengths that are the strength of the pastor and weaknesses that are the weaknesses of the pastor. Right? If the pastor is hospitable and joyful, you'll see that become infectious in the people. If he's secretive and cut off, that'll become uh, pervasive in the people. This happens, right? This is, this is how God's designed reality. What are we going to be shaped to look like? Jesus. Who is our head? Jesus. And so what happens here is that the word actually reaches the king, and now the king says, everybody, even the animals, are going to be repentant. Everybody. Nobody eats. Nobody drinks. Everybody get ready to die. The king, the head, he leads them into death. He says, look, we don't, we don't know how this thing's going to shake out, but maybe this God will be merciful to us. Maybe if we turn from our wickedness, we'll stop being a stench in his nose. Maybe he'll love us. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll show us grace and mercy. And it's by the king's word that this happens. And it's after the king issues an edict and says, we all got to do this, right? What the king does is he takes the word that Jonah brings to him and he adds, he glorifies it. He brings out implications. He says, okay, in 40 days we'll be overthrown. This is what we should do then, right? It's faithful uh, articulation of God's speech. He's like a really good pastor, right? In 40 days, we'll be overthrown. Okay, we're going to take this verse, and this is what we're going to talk about it, okay? What do we need to do? We've got to put, turn away from our wickedness. If you're doing violence, stop doing violence. If you're eating, stop eating. Put on sackcloth and ashes. This is what a good king does. And he starts with himself, right? He starts in sackcloth and ashes. He takes on responsibility. Right? This is, this is what, what Job does, right? When stuff starts going wrong in his life, he actually, he assumes responsibility. It's not his fault, but he's assuming the responsibility. This is what Jesus does, right? He becomes humanity to assume our responsibility. To take on what was not his. This is what a good dad does, right? A kid breaks off somebody's window. I'll pay for it. Well, you didn't break it. Make your kid do chores and, and pay for it. Maybe that's a good lesson. It's like the dad's assuming the responsibility. The house is chaotic. The kids are disobedient, right? He comes home from work. He does, a good dad doesn't say, I got a bad wife. She's doing a bad job with my kids, right? He, he says, okay, what, what are we doing here? What am I doing wrong? Have I not set up systems? Have I not taught my, my kids well? Why is this happening? Why is there chaos? Do I have chaos in my life? Do I need to repent in sackcloth and ashes? Am I bringing chaos into the home, right? That's what a good dad does. He doesn't blame other people. He doesn't throw his wife under the bus, right? Jesus doesn't throw the bride under the bus. He doesn't, he doesn't tell the church, you figure it out. Clean yourself up, okay? I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. 
Ephesians 5, he continually washes her with the word. Hosea, right? This is what God says. I'm like this to Israel. Hosea, go marry a prostitute and keep going after her. Keep doing it. How many times? Just forever. Until you die. You keep going after her. It's what a good king does. He assumes responsibility. He owns his stuff. He owns the people that are under him. He says, this is what we're doing. We're going to appeal to God to be merciful to us. Because when the word of God comes to people with a soft heart, they're repentant. They'll change. They'll actually turn things around. Right? To repent. To reorient yourself. It's not just, I did a bad thing. It's you shut the door on the bad thing and you do the right thing. That's repentance. To actually do righteousness. This is what Isaiah says about fasting. To keep the fast is not just to stop eating food. It's to be generous and hospitable and to do justice. Right? So this is one of the missing parts with the Lenten season. Don't just not eat sugar for 40 days. Right? Feed a family that doesn't have enough to eat. Take, take extra out of the bank account and give to somebody that doesn't have it. Right? Instead of, if you're going to skip a meal, don't just skip a meal and be like, well, I feel much better at the end of the day. Pray when you're supposed to be eating, right? Do something. Replace it. Repent, right? To fill that void. What was the wickedness, right? This is why it's not just put off the old man. End of exoneration. Put off the old man and put on the new. You've got to do something. You've got to be something different now. You're a new creation. So it all starts from God's ontological identification of what you are. You've been baptized. You're a new creation. You're this thing. Therefore, act like it. Not act like it until I say you're this thing. You are this thing. That's salvation by grace, right? You are this thing. Now, heed my word. Feed my sheep. Do justice. That's who God shows mercy to. He shows mercy to the humble. Right? He didn't come to save the righteous. He didn't come to save the people that don't need him or would say they don't need him. It's the brokenhearted. And sometimes they're poor and sometimes they're rich. Sometimes they're an empire and sometimes they're a backwater civilization. And what happens is the first become last and the last will be first. It's a new economic system. The king makes himself last. He becomes a foot washer. He puts himself in ashes. He dethrones himself because there's a new king in town, Yahweh. The king mediates as the dying king, as the king that dies for his city. Just as Christ descends from glory for the life of the world, who leaves his throne, who fasts for 40 days in the wilderness, who puts himself under testing, who puts himself under the wrath of the Father. The word of God can change the entire governance of a people. Again, I think we mentioned this last week, that you want to see the progression as worship, culture, politics. That the word of the Lord will change people. And those changed people will change their culture, and that changed culture will be a new politic. God's kingdom 
will and continues to invade Earth. It happens in Nineveh, right? Everybody, the entire city changes because God's word came into their midst. And anytime God's words enters and people's belongings, their homes, their possessions, it's a new thing. He always make, he's always making things new. So that's why the old stuff dies. That's why idols are burned. The fear of God brings nations to repentance. The repentance, not just as sorrow for sin, but as a killing of the old so the new can be put on. Repentance puts us in participation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That we'd submit ourselves to the Son. We'd submit ourselves to the Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword that could cut us open and reveal things in us that we wouldn't even know to articulate if we weren't humble. God, reveal any wicked way in me. I'm actually so broken, I, I can't even identify sin in my own life sometimes. We get so desensitized to the stuff that lingers in the dark corners. Search me. Find any wicked way in me. I'm exposing myself to the word of God that the light and the sharpness of it would come in and actually cut stuff out. This is gleeful submission to a good king, to a good judge, to a merciful king. The declaration of Christ's kingship and coming judgment is the objective reality by which nations are brought in. This is essentially, this is the same thing, right? That we, the reason the gospel is effective is because Jesus is ruling and reigning right? until all his enemies become his footstool. That means they will, right? They will all be his footstool at some point. So we, when you evangelize, when you tell people who Jesus is, he is their king and they're in rebellion. He's a good king. You, you want to worship this king. If you eat of this king's table, you'll never die. His laws are just. He's merciful. He'll keep forgiving you 70 times, seven times. Right? He'll, rest, he'll restore every, everything that was broken. One day he's going to reconcile it. Right? Everything will be made new. The humble submission of God's people will lead to the humble submission of all men. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. May it be effective in our lives. Give us soft hearts and humility. Make us wise and repentant in the midst of our neighbors and our families. In Jesus' name, amen.